Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Bozo with John Fort and Julia Borson. Carl has the morning off. Today, geopolitical tensions and the possibility of war in Ukraine lead to volatility. The Nasdaq recovering from pre-market losses after Russian officials say compromise is still possible. Plus, we'll take a look at the impact on chips as we get an upgrade of Micron and a downgrade of Texas Instruments. And then Tech Talk's a big game. Crypto's EV and the metaverse dominating Super Bowl ads last night, John. Yeah, and we will start with the feed today, joined by Plexo Capital Managing Partner Lo Tony, and we'll get to the chips, what to expect when a couple of gig economy companies report later this week. But first, let's uh, get to the New York Stock Exchange, our Mike Santoli, taking a look at some of the macro factors shaking up markets this morning. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the same pressure points that are being applied to the overall stock market, obviously hitting tech. Tech, though, in a little bit more of a vulnerable position because it is further off of its highs. Just take a look at sort of the field position of the NASDAQ 100 ETF here. Uh, It's about 15 percent off its record high. And what I always like to point out is just sort of how far back in time we're also going pretty much to early July. Uh, or June, late June even. So uh, basically almost eight months. Uh, so we've kind of skimmed a lot of the off the top uh, in terms of valuations right here. Yields are up today, which is kind of interesting, even though they're not at new highs. And yet you have a slight NASDAQ outperformance. So those rules, they're, they're not necessarily a day-to-day bellwether of what's going to happen with these markets. I think the yield story uh, with tech has been slightly overplayed. But take a look within technology, how on a year-to-day basis, so this is just, you know, uh, the last seven weeks or whatever it is. Uh, Really not a lot of differentiation. Even though semis have been the outperformer for a longer period of time coming in, software has actually struggled much more. You see them all kind of pulling into the same zone. I think think this is when a market is under stress. It's in a correction and it's sort of reacting to itself and people trying to figure out if tactically things have gotten oversold enough. Have we taken enough of the valuation out of the big guys for them to be on more uh, balanced footing from here on out? Yeah, and Mike, we've, we've had a lot of the big earnings. Um, we still have some to come, but I wonder if you can kind of discern what is going to be driving markets more in the week ahead. Is it Ukraine and Russia and the possibility of what happens there, or is it the Fed and rate hikes? I think it's going to be a ton of Fed speak. Uh, we know that, right? That, that's all scheduled. And my guess would be that on balance, it's going to be slightly less hawkish than Jim Bullard, who we've heard from over the past several days, including this morning, who's kind of holding to this idea of being much more aggressive quickly. So if I'm sort of putting that on one side of the scale, it says that's probably going to get no worse, at least rhetorically, than we had before. We'll see what yields do in response to that. Geopolitical stuff, I think, to me, is more just an exacerbating factor on all this, and it's mostly transmitted through energy prices. And you see them coming off a little bit today. So clearly nobody wants to have any kind of a conflict, but usually that's not the long-term swing factor 
for what markets do. It often is just a little bit of a, of a quick little uh, aggravating element to what's already been going on in markets. All right, Mike. Thank you. Hello, Tony. Uh, we want to start with the semiconductors, the White House warning chip makers to diversify their supply chains as the Russia-Ukraine conflict potentially escalates if Russia retaliates uh, against U.S. Uh, and other coordinated action companies could be blocked from access to key materials like neon and palladium. Meanwhile, the Semiconductor Industry Association forecasts 8.8 percent sales growth in 2022. That follows a record 2021 with more than a half a trillion in sales. Today, Wedbush upgrades Micron to outperform. Raymond James takes Texas Instruments down to market perform. Low, um, to, to what degree do you expect uh, to, to have to react within the industry to how this Russia-Ukraine situation intensifies? I mean, semiconductors have, have overall been pretty stable performers for the market overall, and then there's just the sentiment involved. Right. I think it's interesting just to take a look at, you know, how the market is reacting to the conflict in general or the potential for conflict in general in that region. And look, the government is issuing uh, some warnings to the chip manufacturers that they should start considering identifying other sources for some of those raw materials that were mentioned on urine, neon for the gases and palladium for some of the uh, materials that go into the chip production. So, you know, I think obviously the, the executives have been thinking about this. They have very smart people on the supply chain. But I think it just shows how globalization has really impacted every aspect. And, you know, when we start to look at these global conflicts, it's another aspect of the macroeconomic economy that can have a significant impact. The, the demand for chips is, is just insatiable right now. You know, if we think about, you know, all the different elements that chips are used in. You know, everything has a chip these days. You know, there's a lot of attention placed on cars. That's where we see a lot of growth. But then there's the IoT, there's infrastructure, et cetera. And all of this is, is dependent on the ability to be able to, to have access to building those chips. And given that, then, because the, the argument has been, hey, chips are going to be in everything, chips are so important, uh, how much do we need to be concerned about the impact of uh, geopolitics and even military conflict, uh, as we expect, perhaps, if you follow that uh, thesis, chips to have such an outsized impact on economies in general? Yeah, I think we should look at, you know, some of the conflicts that have happened in the past. Um, you know, it, it wasn't we didn't really see a significant amount of disruption. But what we did see was a significant increase in the prices. And, and so that's another factor. Right. I think those two elements, you know, even if conflict is is going to be um, and based on some of the comments from the, from the coming out of Russia, you know, it seems that they're still open to diplomacy. So I think that's good. But one never knows. You know, we could see a significant increase in the price if those materials are still available and able to get out or the folks on the supply chain need to really start thinking about other places to be able to source some of those materials. And then there will be cost in that, because I would suspect that they're not going to be in the same abundance from other suppliers, meaning that there's going to lead to an increase in prices for those components. Very interesting. Now, Lo, as you look at the fact that Raymond James downgraded Texas Instruments, then Wedbush upgraded Micron, how much divergence do you think you're going to see within this sector in terms of how these companies can manage these new pressures? 
Yeah, I think that's the key is how good are they at managing these pressures? How good are they at actually managing their supply chains? You know, looking at some of the other chip manufacturers, I think looking at some of the capital equipment makers is also going to be interesting. And, you know, thinking about what impact this is going to have, because we already saw pressure within the supply chain due to to COVID and the insatiable demand for chips. And I think this is going to be a true test of the company's ability to be able to manage these supply chain issues. And it could potentially portend their ability in the future, knowing that we're going to continue to see more demand for chips. You know, are these companies going to mm-hmm. be able to, to produce that supply and then to be able to navigate that demand if there is you know, all of a sudden a decrease in the demand, will they build up too much inventory? So I think this is going to be a true test of the ability for the supply chain aspect of these companies. And that's, I think, what analysts are going to really key in on. Hello, it's Deirdre. Good morning. In terms of what the U.S. can do in response or in retaliation, you know, we're talking about the possibility of sanctions for chips. And it's a powerful lever that the U.S. can pull. But what about some of the longer term unintentional consequences of that? I mean, we've seen the effect on China, right? They've made chips such an important industry and they are gaining ground. Do we know or do you have any idea what China might do with this sort of spur more development, more progress in other places in the world, and thus more long-term geopolitical risk for the U.S.? That's an interesting one. It is, it is something to think about. Clearly, the United States is concerned about maintaining leadership within technology overall, and with particular point on chips, given that everything will have a chip. We know that you know, China is obviously the biggest market for the consumption for purchasing chips, given all the products that it produces that have chips inside of them and the amount of investment that China has been making to be able to increase their ability to produce more chips. I think we would also need to think about with our political hats on the ties that, that China has to Russia. And, you know, could Russia actually, as a result of this, kind of influence the ability for China to have easier access to some of those materials for the chip production? All right, Lowell, I also want to get to um, platforms for delivery and rentals. Airbnb and DoorDash reporting results this week. We just heard from Uber and Lyft on kind of the delivery, delivery of stuff, delivery of people. And last week, interesting setup that Uber right now, market cap is, um, I think, a little better than double DoorDash's since DoorDash has not had the kind of growth stock recovery that some others have uh, over the last couple weeks of 2022. Um, and, and then we had Uber with the Super Bowl commercials last night. Uber Eats, but not about stuff that you eat, more convenience delivery. Um, what do you expect here? Uh, let's take DoorDash first, since they were in the crosshairs, at least of those commercials. Yeah, you know, DoorDash, it, it was when we look at how these different markets for, for food delivery played out, the tailwinds definitely benefited all the different players that were doing delivery, you know, it, it rose the, the tide for everyone. But in particular, I think looking at some of the trends with workers taking advantage of offices being closed, they actually went to different locations, kind of exited the city a little bit. And when looking at how DoorDash was able to grow their business, they really were focused. DoorDash was really focused on the suburbs. So, you know, that definitely um, benefited them. And, you know, also they've had increases with the the door pass, the subscription service. 
So, you know, I think analysts are expecting that, you know, this this trend will continue where now that the genie is out of the bottle and people have had a taste of what it's like to be able to have the delivery, um, that's definitely mm -hmm. going to kind of stick. But, of course, the unknown is, as the economy does reopen, how much more of the behavior by consumers will shift back to going out to eat? And could we see a, a little bit of a decline? So there'll be a little bit of an interesting balance to watch out for the difference between how many people continue to still order in versus people yeah. going back out. Right. Market sides aside, low, though, market caps aside, excuse me, uh, DoorDash has always been valued on a much higher multiple than Uber, price to sales of 15 versus less than five for Uber. So investors seem to like this company or value it a lot more. And it's interesting because they do look like very different companies. Yes, they both do food delivery, but DoorDash is going into a more asset heavy model with the things like Dash Mart. Um, so I wonder, would you would that make you nervous as an investor that they're getting away from this sort of three P platform model potentially competing with some of the retailers out there, or does that make you more bullish on a DoorDash versus an Uber? Yeah, just looking at consumer behavior, the things that consumers want, you know, it's always a tricky thing when managing a platform or developing product features to understand, you know, what are the things that consumers are beginning to expect that are almost table stakes? And then how can one truly differentiate themselves? You know, we see things from Uber like the ability with their acquisition of Drizzly to do things that are more around delivery, in the case of Drizzly, uh, Drizzly delivering alcohol. And, you know, so it'll be interesting to look at DoorDash's response and understand, OK, do we as a company need to adopt and start to have some of these other aspects that Uber Eats is doing because yeah. those have become table stakes in the consumer expectations? You know, it's, it's unclear, but I think that yeah. is a good point. They were able to focus on their yeah, and low. Yeah, Lo, I was just going to say, it seems like table stakes these days is speed. And I thought it was so interesting to hear that DoorDash is bumping up its fees for the McDonald's restaurants that are too slow. Because to me, that really says so much about what's going on in this space right now. The pressure on margins, the pressure for speed, the fact that there is this labor shortage. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that and what these fundamental risks are, not just about the reopening, but when it comes to issues of labor and margins. Yeah, well, look, we're, we're seeing labor being the scarce resource, and every CEO is providing comments and their guidance about the ability to be able to access the talent and the price increases that that's bringing, just yet another indication of inflation. We definitely see that within the gig economy. You know, the ability to be able to attract these workers is predicated on providing the economic incentives for them to want to come on the platform. And, you know, at the end of the day, everything is basically handed off to the to the consumer as a price increase. You know, speaking of the speed. Yes. I mean, the gold standard in the delivery space is an expectation of about 15 minutes or so to 20 minutes to be able to get that order. And so in order to meet that, you know, if these restaurants and these workers, the restaurants have to be incentive to get the food prepared. They have to incent the drivers to pick up the food and deliver it. If those costs go up, that's another price increase that consumers are seeing eating away from their wages. All right. Low Tony, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. We're getting breaking news from the New York Fed. Let's go over to Steve Leisman. Steve. Yeah, some surprising news here. The New York Fed saying in their consumer, uh, their report of consumer expectations that inflation expectations declined. It's the first decline 
in the one year ahead inflation expectations that we've seen since October 2020, the third consecutive decline for the three year ahead. Here's the data. The one year ahead is uh, still they're all still elevated, 5.8 percent, but down two tenths on the one year ahead, down five tenths on the three year ahead to three and a half percent. That's the largest decline since the survey began in 2013 for any one month. And the five year ahead down two tenths to three percent. So they're saying home price expectations also rose inside that, but it was commodity expectations that fell. These are still elevated, folks. I don't know what to make of this. Is it suggesting that maybe when it comes to inflation expectations, we've reached some kind of peak? It's certainly worth watching as to whether or not that ends up being some kind of peak in the CPI. Deirdre? Steve, thanks for bringing that to us. Absolutely. Keep watching it. Still to come is more cloud M&A ahead. Investors push back against New York's crypto rules. And Kathy Wood doubles down on high growth. The Nasdaq is up about a third of 1%. Tech Check is just getting started. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Time now for a gut check on Splunk, the software firm receiving a more than $20 billion takeover offer from Cisco. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, this deal would be Cisco's largest ever acquisition, but the two companies reportedly aren't in active talks. Now, Splunk shares surging on that news, up nearly 10%. Cisco, meanwhile, sinking lower to start the day. It's off about 1%. So, John, I do think it's worth noting that Splunk shares were down before today, were down pretty dramatically since the CEO resigned last fall. Yeah, I mean, that's important. The stock had been in the 170s uh, just back in November, and and 20 billion would be around, what, 120? Um, So this was kind of a lowball offer in in what might be a hotter real estate market, (laughs) if I can make a metaphor, D, than some uh, might expect. I mean, maybe in the depth of January, this this looked more opportunistic and possible, but they might have to pay, I don't know, a bit more, especially given where Silver Lake seemed to value this thing uh, middle of last year. Probably can't get it for $20 billion, but nice to know they're interested. 
Yeah, you know, they may have to pay a bit more, but this is another sort of classic pandemic story, right? Shares rose early in the pandemic and then have almost fallen um, by half before today's uh, bump up. So, you know, again, it plays into this theme. A lot of what we're talking about, guys, is that what is looking attractive now at these valuations? Where do they settle? Well, let's stick with consolidation in the cloud. Our next guest sees a trillion dollar transformation taking shape in the sector, projecting the industry expands to $1.8 trillion by 2030. Joining us now, Piper Sandler, senior research analyst Brent Braceland. Uh, Brent, I believe that outlook was actually moved forward a little bit. Uh, so how do you sort through the names in this sell-off that has really hit all of cloud and software over the last few months? How do you sort through the names that are attractive and could be M&A targets? Sure. It, it's, it's a little challenging because if you think about the cloud group, we're now talking about a group that's 105 uh, different stocks all tied to the cloud. So that's up from about 70 a year ago. That's up from 25 just about uh, uh, five years ago. So the number of cloud stocks to choose from now is created a challenge. And in our view, the focus really in, in the short term uh, is really on buying the best cloud uh, models, the companies that can sustain the growth, the companies that can hold the growth. To me, those are the areas where we're most bullish on uh, from a near-term perspective. This is a group that's down 30% since the, uh, the the beginning of November. So it's been a very, very challenging space. The good news, we're now nearing three-year trough valuations for the group. And so the valuation risk is less, but still, I think there's going to be a hypersensitivity to the models that can sustain the growth. Okay, so Brent, what are those best business models? Are you looking in the enterprise space? As you say, cloud covers so much now. We talk about everything from Peloton to Shopify to some D2C brands even want to be cloud companies. So what are those best models with the best fundamentals? Fair enough. In the short run, I think the the bigger risk lies with some of the consumer-oriented B2C companies um, because of some tough compares. Um, and, and we're really focused on more of the enterprise space. So these are companies like Bill.com. This is a company where they have a business model where 70% of their revenue is actually tied to a small take rate. Every time a small business pays their bills, Bill.com gets paid. Additionally, Bill.com has a business where if the, 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 the Fed funds rate continues to go up, uh, every 100 basis point rate hike, they get about 30 to $35 million in incremental revenue. So one of the few cloud names that actually benefit from a rising rate environment. So Bill.com is one of our favorite names in the space, all B2B. Another company is called Procore. They do construction software. This is a business that uh, has majority of their revenue as a take rate, but instead of recognize the revenue, when you buy that sweater online, they're recognizing their revenue over a five-year period that it takes to build a $100 million building. So we like these business models that are part software, part take rate, mostly tied to the enterprise. These are really strong, durable business models that we're very focused on. But as you raise your overall forecast for the sector, Brent, I'm wondering what the potential risks are that you're most focused on. You mentioned interest rates earlier and how Bill.com would be an unusual beneficiary of that. But what are you watching more broadly for the sector as you raise your forecast? Sure. So we're quite bullish around the group. Uh, this group actually accelerated. So growth went from 31% in, in 2020 to actually 33% overall. So fundamentals are really strong. I continue to put valuation 
as the kind of biggest uh, risk factor, particularly in a rising rate environment for this group. So you have to pick your spots carefully. I think you, there's a hypersensitivity to growth. And so we continue to kind of want to own those best business models that can hold the growth, growth Bill, Procore, Snowflake, Unity Software, MongoDB. These are real high quality cloud software assets that can hold the growth. Now, as we think about that $1.8 trillion forecast, over 50% of it is controlled by the th big three, Microsoft, Google Cloud, and uh, AWS. So a big part of the forecast, a big part of the cloud market today is controlled by, by the big three, but mm -hmm. we see plenty of opportunity for, for wealth creation in some of these smaller players. Brent, I wonder, uh, you talk about valuation, if part of the lesson from this apparent, uh, at least at one point, Cisco bid for Splunk, is that some of the selling was overdone. I mean, when you look at how Cisco and Splunk are already working together, the value that uh, a lot of analysts can see would be there. And then that 20 billion, I mean, it, it looks like it was uh, a low ball and a lot of people think it, they would have to pay more than that. And yet, you know, look how low Splunk was, was trading just days ago. What does that tell you about some of the stocks and perhaps uh, value to be found in this market? Some of the analysis that we did on, on public cloud software M&A is that over the last three years, it's actually the private equity buyers that have been more active. So the question is, where are the strategics? You know, Cisco obviously now is making a move here on, on, on Splunk. And so we think with the valuation inversion, public stocks are actually cheaper than private companies right now. We're, gonna, we're about to enter a, the next big major uh, public cloud uh, M&A cycle. So we think this is the beginning, not the end of M&A. And it, again, it's because we have that inversion. <clears throat> we saw this again in 1314, uh, 2013, 2014, where we saw this inversion mm -hmm. of, of private valuations being higher than, than publics. That started a wave of, 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 of M&A. We think we're about to enter that next wave. Yeah, a lot of folks agreeing with you there. Brent, uh, thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. And as we head to break, let's get a check on shares of Disney. B of A says it's, at, it's a top pick, adding the stock to its U.S. one list today, and they're not alone. Our next guest says Disney is one of the few names to own right now. That stock now up 2.5%. More on why it's a stock to own when Tech Tech returns in two. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba -ba. 
Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Bosa with John Fort and Julia Borston. NASDAQ is trading at session highs. Meanwhile, Dow and S&P still negative. More on the volatility that we are seeing in today's session in just a moment. But first, let's get a news update with Christina Parts-Nevelis. Kate Parts. And here is what's happening at this hour. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard making more hawkish comments on monetary policy. He says strong inflation reports over the last four months show price increases are broadening and the Fed needs to take action. We're in an environment where we we can't just plot along sort of meeting by meeting and do a little bit here and a little bit there. We're, we're going to have to react to data and uh, and be more nimble in this environment than we would have had to have been in the 10 years prior to the pandemic. 3M, one of the biggest losers in the Dow today, the company giving full-year revenue guidance that's largely below estimates. 3M also warning COVID-related respirator sales are expected to decline and weigh on earnings. And grill maker Weber seeing its shares tumble 15%. First quarter losses were double what analysts expected. Revenues also came in a little light. The company says it was hit with acute supply chain challenges and dramatic cost increases for raw material and shipping. Weber's IPO'd or IPO'd at 14 bucks a share back in August. It's now trading ugh, under $9 a share. Julia, back over to you. Thanks, Christina. Now turning to the markets, our next guest sees safe bets in tech, including NVIDIA, Amazon, and Disney, which are all up this morning. Joining us now, Mark Asset Management's Morris. Mark, Morris, I want to talk about some of these individual picks, but why don't you start us off by giving your broader perspective on the market? We've been talking um, about the Fed. We've been talking about inflation. We've been talking about geopolitical risks. What's your outlook right now? Okay. Well, we just uh, wrote a, sh- uh, a letter to our limited partners and to our investors, and we basically said there were two factors adversely affecting the market. The first one, I think, is pretty much passed. I call that indigestion, the fact that so much paper was put into the market last year. And the second one I'm just going to use under the word uncertainty, fear of the Fed, the geopolitical environment, things that we can't. Uh, the first one you can sort of quantify, the rest of them you can't. Uh, and our approach has been stay invested in quality, but build some liquidity, which we have, and take advantage of opportunity when you think that opportunity is there. Well, so speaking of opportunity, you know, we just heard Disney's earnings last week. I know Disney is one of your topics, along with Amazon, both of those stocks up this morning. What are you seeing in terms of the opportunity versus valuation equation there? Well, the way we look at it, we think Disney's a cheap stock. When you look at the assets, uh, the real estate, the library, uh, the fact that that gives it a tremendous base of anything like a normal economy recurring income, and the fact that we appear to be, you know, subject to another variant, we appear to be moving into a more normal economy domestically first, eventually worldwide. So uh, you've got a company with great franchises, that's been investing and is continuing to invest in the thing that sets it apart, which is high quality entertainment. Uh, And uh, I think its decision to emphasize streaming within the context of offering a wide range of entertainment products is right on. So we really like it. And we were really impressed with the quarter. Morris, good morning. How do you define quality in this market. I think when you were on with us at the very end of January, you were saying, hey, I want to stay away from anything that's not profitable right now. But since then, we've seen quite a rebound in some stocks that have 
pretty strong growth, pretty strong net revenue retention, but, but are younger companies. Are you still defining quality in the same way? Yes. Look, we love younger companies. We want them to be making money, especially in an environment uh, where uh, financial accommodation is probably going to be probably going to be more disciplined uh, and where we run the risk of a, a discontinuity. Hopefully we won't have it. But we're right in the middle of one of those periods right now with respect to uh, Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So when we take those two factors into account, we, we have some young companies. We were always doing that. You know, that's why we were in Amazon for fortunately a long time and Apple for a very long time. We still are. Uh, but we want to see cash flow. We don't see cash flow. Mm. We're going to be very impatient. So, Morris, the two themes that you're sort of thinking the market in terms of the market uh, sentiment right now are uncertainty and indigestion. What do you think is driving risk sentiment today? We're seeing the Nasdaq outperforming some of the highest growth names surge, like the EV space. Rivian Lucid, they're up big today. Is this sort of a, do you expect this to last? What's driving it? I wish I knew. I'll just put it this way. The world is changing. The one thing that hasn't changed is that the trends toward digitalization and the trend towards more and more high-speed communications worldwide are there. They're intensifying. I went to a seminar last week, a really great one, and the point that was made uh, by a guy in the real estate business is the amount of money going into the cloud, the amount of money uh, being put there for the infrastructure tells you this is a long-lasting trend still in its early stages. So if we can start to see ourselves a little bit above water in terms of economic perspective and particularly geopolitical stability, then these trends reemerge in terms of visibility. And I think that's what we're seeing. Well, we have certainly seen that digitization trend. Morris, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're more than welcome. Have a great day. Now, coming up, crypto, EVs, and the metaverse. Some big takeaways from this year's Super Bowl ads. Tech Chat is back in a moment. That Coinbase ad airing during last night's Super Bowl, driving traffic to the site that caused Coinbase to crash for some users. But crypto, along with EVs, certainly dominating the airwaves last night. Look, Deirdre, I know a lot of people were talking about crypto, and I thought it was really funny to juxtapose that ad, which cost near nothing to make (laughs) with some of the uh, much more pricey crypto ads starring LeBron James and the like. But it was brilliant, wasn't it, uh, John? Even though I've seen it about 100 times since last night, when it hits that corner, it's always satisfying. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what my boy, my sons were looking at, is waiting for it to hit the corner. Weren't scanning it, didn't care about that. They were just <laughs> watching to see if it hit the corner. I don't know. This was, it was interesting, like the Salesforce ad, which Mark Andreessen is having fun with on Twitter uh, over the past few hours. But, you know, n- not talking about business software, um, but taking a dig at, at folks who are thinking about space, Julia. There was a lot of that, right, Julia? Yeah, I, mean, I taking that's digs dope. at your competitor was a theme, certainly. Taking digs at competitor and also just sort of this retro nostalgia. I mean, I think that the Coinbase uh, ad was so simple, so nostalgic to that old 
DVD ad and really got people to use QR codes. So for more on that Coinbase ad and the overall rise of QR codes, let's bring in Tim Armstrong. He's the founder and CEO of Flowcode, which is a QR code maker. Good morning, Tim. I understand that Flowcode did not do the QR code that was used in that Coinbase ad, but what do you make of this surge of awareness of what QR codes are? Well, Julia, um, great to see you again. And I uh, just got back to New York from California. I was out there all week meeting with people around the Super Bowl. And I think the most exciting thing is, you know, QR codes, which we've been doing since before the pandemic. And people used to ask us, you know, why are you doing QR codes? They don't seem to work. And, you know, we knew that the mo- biggest part of the future was going to be directly connecting with your consumer. And I think last night, you know, the Super Bowl made uh, QR codes go from supporting character to main character. And it's a really important um, technology. It's why we've built we've built the largest uh, QR company in the United States for TV, and we have the only specific product for TV. So we're cheering on Coinbase, and as an early Coinbase investor, and I'm a current customer there, as I was super excited to see what they did. And, and I think it just shows you how close you can get to your consumer and how fast. I think Coinbase won the Super Bowl last night. Well, the fact that we're all talking about it certainly indicates that they they probably did. But I'm curious if you think that last night the awareness of, of what Coinbase did with that QR code is going to be a tipping point in terms of how businesses use QR codes and also consumer awareness, not just what they are, but how to engage with them. Yeah, I'd say this. Um, and Julia, you know. What? Well, it looks like Tim is frozen there, thanks uh, to the joy of all of this technology. But, John, I'm <laughs> curious what your thoughts were in terms of whether this could actually be a tipping point for how consumers actually start to use QR codes as opposed to just dismissing them. Yeah, indeed. And I understand that Tim is back. Maybe some of that uh, old Google fiber uh, firing up again for us. Tim, I, I, I thought that QR codes are interesting in part because of this omni-channel type world that we are increasingly moving in. It's always seen that it's difficult to move people from one medium, like from TV to desktop, from desktop to mobile, et cetera, et cetera. QR codes, perhaps one way of bridging that. How far can you push it? What else can they do? And am I looking at that correctly? Yeah, so 85% of the economy is still offline. And, you know, we like to say we're big investors in the Earthverse to the metaverse and back. But the Earthverse has billions of consumer decisions, the biggest decisions you make, the most important ones, and the customer relationships you have in many cases are built offline. So that's why two and a half years ago we launched FlowCode. We're in 200 countries. We've got millions of people have built our products. And really, it's important for two reasons. It allows you to become direct to consumer and get first party data with your customers. So you build direct information, which is really important. The second thing is your data does not end up going out to Silicon Valley, to the companies that take it, crunch it, uh, auction it and sell it to your competitors. So, you know, Coinbase last night proved the case that we've been saying for two and a half years, which is Everyone has a mobile phone. You want to have direct connections and first party data, and you don't need to go through Silicon Valley to have those connections and data. So we think, and this is why we built Flowcode, that uh, Flowcode is going to be the type of company that will revolutionize the offline to online economy. And that's why it's important. 
Yeah, we even have our own QR code here at Tech Check, Tim. Um, it's Deirdre, by the way. I wonder that what comes after QR codes? Uh, we were talking to Snap7 Spiegel the other day, and they're doing a lot of really interesting stuff with augmented reality, including sort of a menu that pops up from your table. And I believe that bypasses the QR code, doesn't it? But as we talk about things like augmented reality and the metaverse, how are you thinking about it and moving into that space already, if you are? Yeah, so we have um, a large amount of companies in the metaverse and crypto and Web3 use flow code. And the reason is, just like when you go to a bank on your uh, corner, you want to have uh, a trusted place that's offline where you can see products and services. So people in the metaverse and Web3 use our codes offline. And so I would say we have a big business and uh, traditional brands building direct to consumer and small businesses. And we have a big business in Web3 and things like crypto, because uh, the best way to get your online product seen is to have a presence in the offline world. Well, we're certainly paying a lot of attention to the importance of first party data, especially in light of all those issues, targeting ads, et cetera, uh, in light of Apple's operating system changes. So Tim Armstrong, thanks for talking to us about this interesting issue on the heels of last night's crypto QR code ad. And EVs, certainly a focus of last night's ads, also tracking some big name investors. The filing showing billionaire George Soros bought a roughly 2% stake in Rivian. Those shares popping nearly 12% on the news. Don't go away. Get a gut check on ARC. The ETF broadly underperforming the market since the start of the year, now down 22% in that time versus the S&P down less than eight. But Kathy Wood is still bullish on innovation, snapping up over $400 million of high growth stocks just over the past two weeks. Those buys include Roblox, Block and Robinhood, which have all taken hits this year. The rising rate environment not steering Kathy Wood away from her strategy. Tesla, Roku, Teladoc, Zoom, still the top holdings in her ETF, guys, in some cases doubling down on these names that have sold off. This was an interesting one, though, John. She actually unloaded Zillow after it said it was getting out of the iBuying business. I wonder if she would take another look after what Rich Barton told us, how they want to take a piece, a large piece of the transactions. But, uh, you know, the fact that she just reports all of this stuff and the transparency behind it is so interesting in a tough year to see where that decision making lies. It is interesting. I wonder if it's also distracting. I mean, are we trying too hard to make sense of this? Julia, she very clearly has a a vision of the future and how soon it's going to arrive. She was right about a certain number of things for a certain period of time, and she's become sort of the person to watch representative of a certain high-growth cohort. I mean, I, I, I hesitate to try to make, to read too much uh, into it. Well, it's interesting that she keeps on stressing the importance of innovation. I love her quote, history tells us not to bet against innovation. But of course, you have to take into account valuation when you're talking about innovation. And I also think it's fascinating. There's so many people who want to bet directly against her and that thesis that you described, John, with that uh, anti-Kathy uh, Wood ETF. So uh, certainly one to watch as well. Meanwhile, after the break, billionaire Bill Ackman warns New York's crypto rules could lead to even more residents leaving the state. That story is coming up next. Hedge fund manager Bill Ackman and several crypto exchanges saying New York's effort to crack down on fraud 
could alienate potential businesses in the state. Our Robert Frank has that story. Robert? John Bill Ackman joining the fight against New York's crypto regulations. Ackman tweeting to Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul, let's fix this right away. We can't lose any more New Yorkers. New York is on its way to becoming a crypto center of innovation. The issue here is bit license. That's a 2015 state regulation that governs any businesses that buy, sell, transmit, or custody crypto for customers. Now, the state so far only granting about 25 licenses, mainly to the larger companies like Coinbase, Gemini, and Binance. It can take more than three years to get one of these licenses and tens of thousands of dollars. Some companies like Kraken won't even do business with New Yorkers because of these rules. Now, no comment so far from Governor Hochul or Mayor Adams on whether bit license will actually change. Ackman saying that last year, uh, basically, Bitcoin is a, quote, purely speculative asset. So he's not a big investor in crypto and he wouldn't invest himself. But he does support the business opportunities more broadly that crypto is creating. So far, 17 states have passed new crypto rules just over the past year, despite Miami's claim to be the crypto capital Florida still has very strict requirements for crypto. Legislators there are hoping to change that and pass more crypto-friendly rules this year. But Wyoming still stands out. They're trying to become the Delaware for crypto, recently passing several regulations that make it easier for crypto companies to trade, mine, and sell crypto, and even conduct banking activities. And guys, we saw that $100 million fine this morning to BlockFi involving 32 states selling unlicensed investment products. So clearly there is a need for regulation here, but it has to be coordinated and smart. Back to you. Yeah, the, the, the question is, what kind of regulation? I'm curious, you know, you said you got a no comment from the mayor and the governor um, of New York. But what kind of reception do you think Ackman's going to get for his, his push and his argument? This has been an issue that's been on a sort of slow boil for years by the crypto industry, by many attorneys, even by some regulators that say, look, New York was early on this. This is the first regulation, but went way overboard. So what this did is it brought it out into the open. And I think so far, the governor, the new head of Department of Financial Services who regulates this, were already leaning in this direction. So this may be that slight push that they need to change it. Yeah, and Robert, the idea that it comes from Ackman, too, who you might not typically think of as pushing for these kinds of regulations, right. Robert. Thank you. Meanwhile, if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing. Peloton's new CEO, Barry McCarthy, says he expects the company to remain independent after rumors of a potential sale to Amazon or Nike sent the stock skyrocketing last week. The former CFO of Netflix and Spotify telling the Financial Times, quote, there are lots of other things I could be doing with my time that are quite lucrative other than hanging out with a business that is about to be sold. McCarthy also said that his long term vision for the company focuses on content over more devices, saying, quote, that's where the magic lives. And certainly, John, we talked about this last week. We could see that hardware business becoming a legacy business for this company. It's not even that old. Uh, I, I, do, I disagree with that. I, I do think that if he was going to try to sell it, uh, Julia, this is what he would have to say. But also, nobody's paying 40 bucks a month just for content. It's for the experience that includes <laughs> hardware. 
Well, to that point, John, he did say that he thinks that they could move to an entirely different pricing structure and move away from that $30, $39 a month fee. So it'll be really interesting, Deirdre, to see if they introduce more tiered structure pricing structures after this. Yeah, there's a lot that could happen with McCarthy at the reins. Meanwhile, guys, the Nasdaq still outperforming. Off-session highs, though, up about two-tenths, two-thirds of one percent. Let's get to the halftime with Melissa Lee. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com.